Welcome to another podcast from Faith Baptist Church here in Visalia. My name is Eric Northwick. I am one of the pastors here in Visalia. And it is my privilege to host this podcast. And today I want to do something just a, a little bit different. I am by myself, as in I don't have anyone else with me in the podcast, because I, I've been reading some works, a biography on John Owen and a, some of John Owen's writings, and, and I thought this, 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 this guy, John Owen, really is relevant to us today in, in many profound ways, in many, many ways. He was a prolific writer. In fact, his last work, he finished, and it was going to press the very day that he died, and it was on the glory of Christ, and it is a seminal work. It is a profound work of who Jesus is and and, and, and the importance of seeking his glory, and I think I want to at some point reflect on that, but I was just reading on John Owen's focus on his Trinitarian devotion and in, in some of the, the words he had to say. And one of the things that John Owen is known for is his ability, in particular to the, to the Trinity, his writings on the Trinity, his devotion to the Trinity, and his expositing of the implications of the Trinity. And he spent a great deal of time and effort writing on Trinitarian truths, and they are a treasure for us today. Because for John Owen, the doctrine of the Trinity is immensely practical. It isn't just theological. It isn't just reserved for the scholastics and those who are considered the intellectuals. Actually, we are all called to grow in grace and knowledge, and we are all called toward an intellectual and even scholastic pursuit of who God is. It, it's, it was, it's an important concept to understand and to focus on because of its theological beauty and the glory that's seen there. I mean, when we look at the Trinity, we see that He is one God, and there's unity, but in three persons, there's plurality. And within this unity and this plurality, we see glory, we see beauty, we see love. And, and there are profound implications for gazing into the nature of who God is that motivates us. And uh, we don't spend enough time. And, and so I thought I would maybe take a little bit of time to gaze at some Trinitarian realities. In particular, I want to focus for today on the nature of God as Father. This is, you know, looking at the persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We begin with, with saying that our God is our Father, our Heavenly Father. And this was something that Owen spent an enormous mass of writing on. In fact, he was passionate and relentless in 
communicating the nature of Father, in particular, what it means to, to say that the Father loves us. He saw this as tremendously practical and motivational. And I think that this is important because there are a lot of Christians today who are simply not convinced in the love of their Heavenly Father. I mean, the same people who will say that Jesus loves me because they they look at what Christ did on the cross and they say, well, that's love. But they don't grasp the source of that love, which comes from the Father. There's a cognitive gap between the trust that Christians have in Jesus and their trust in the Father. And it's almost as if they fear that behind Christ, there is a a Father who is distant and dark and even sinister. And Owen, he said this, he says, many dark and disturbing thoughts are apt to arise in this thing. Few can carry up their hearts and minds to this height by faith as to rest their souls in the love of the Father. They live below it in the troublesome region of hopes and fears, storms and clouds. All here is serene and quiet, but how to attain to this pitch they know not. And Owen again in another writing said this, How few of the saints are experimentally acquainted with this privilege of holding immediate communion with the Father in love. With what anxious, doubtful thoughts do they look upon him? What fears, what questionings are there of his goodwill and kindness? At the best, many think there is no sweetness at all in him towards us. But what is purchased at the high price of the blood of Jesus? It is true that alone, that alone is the way of communion. But the free fountain and spring of all is in the bosom of the Father. What is... Owen saying here, he's saying that it's almost as if Jesus has has had to purchase the love of the Father or 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 forgiveness from the Father, and it's really Christ is the one who loves. But the fountain and spring of love is found in the Father. This is what Owen. Actually, Sinclair Ferguson, in his uh, biography, uh, he, he calls this serpent theology because it is an, an attack against the relationship between God and his image-bearing son. And it is the same kind of attack that Satan used in the garden. What did Satan say? He, he first throws doubt on the truthfulness in the reliability of God's word. He says, did God actually say? And when Eve responds that God had said that they would die if they ate of the fruit of the tree of of the knowledge of good and evil, the serpent said to the woman, well, you, you surely, you, you will not surely die. But there's something more sinister in Satan's words. And it is, it, it, it is that he twists the very word of God in order to aim at a very important point that he's driving at, and that is to distort the character of God. That's Satan's end goal. He he wants 
the nature of God to be less than, than the good God that he is in Eve's eyes. And, and so he's distorting this. But we see from the beginning that God is a good God. In fact, only one tree in the entire orchard, in the entire garden, was forbidden. This is an incredible generosity. And it is a simple command to not eat of that one tree. The father wanted his children to love and trust and obey him and, and simply and beautifully and, and, and in a childlike way do what he told them to do. And in this way, he desired that they would grow strong in faith and trust in his goodness and give him glory. It is the obedience to his command that strengthens our trust and our love. And this is exactly what God aimed for in the garden with Adam and Eve. But Satan, he twists the command and he says to the woman, did, it God, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? What, what a mean, despicable God is this. How can a good God withhold something from you? He doesn't really love you. That's what he's saying. That's what Satan is doing with his words. He, he never, he, he doesn't really give you everything for your enjoyment. And this is what he's trying to draw out of Eve, a complaint against the goodness of God. And this is where the truth of God is exchanged for a lie. And that lie is, at its root, is very basic. And it is that the Father doesn't really love you. In fact, he is malevolent toward you. He, he begrudges you of any enjoyment. He, he restricts your life. He's a taskmaster. He, he doesn't want you to enjoy good things at all. This is who you call God. That was Satan's lie. And that lie has permeated the world ever since. And it infiltrates into our very thinking that our Father doesn't love us. That he doesn't really want what is best for us. He's a policeman, he's a, a divine Scrooge, he's the spoiler. His honor and his glory are enemies of our freedom and joy. What a twisted way to think. And people, they say that they believe in a God of love, but do they really? There doesn't seem to be a life that demonstrates this. Because what we find is that people, even people within the church, don't really seem to love God with a, a single devotion, with, with zeal and with strength. They, they, they don't worship him with zeal and with energy. They, they don't long to gather in the church in order to Focus on worshiping the God who loves them. 
And so what we see is people who say that, yeah, my God is a God of love, that it's really just a smokescreen. And under deep, underneath is a deep mistrust of God. This, this must be true because otherwise, why is it? Why does it take so much coaxing to call God's people to abandon the, themselves in, in obedience to our loving Father? If we believed that he is good and that his ways are good, and that he truly does love us with all of the love of, of his nature, the infinite. Wouldn't we abandon ourselves to that love in disservice? But that's not what we do. We see this hinted in the description of the prodigal son. He spends his entire journey home rehearsing his speech that he's going to say to his father. Oh, father, just treat me as one of your hired servants. He's not expecting to see his father gather up his robes and run down the hill and embrace him and kiss him and celebrate his return. That's not what he's expecting. No, what he's expecting is what he has learned from his Jewish culture there's going to be a shaming ceremony. He's going to be disowned as a son, and, and he deserves this. Oh, he doesn't expect anything less than to be treated as a slave. This was the mindset of his brother, who said, look, these many years I have served you, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. He sees himself as a slave and not a son. He has no sense of the father's love. What a, an epidemic. And yet we see that when the father saw the son in the distance, he indeed hiked up his robes and he breached social etiquette and he ran to his son and he cried out, my son has returned. And he embraced him and he kissed him and he threw a party for him. This is the love of our father. It is unexpected, but it is who he is. Jesus paints another picture in the parable of the of the, of the talents. The servant, rather than using his master's wealth productively, he returns it in the, the handkerchief which he had hidden in it when he first got it. And why does he do that? Well, he says, because I was afraid of you. You are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. This is his caricature of his master. And yet this master has just told the servant that if he turns his talent into five talents, he would become a mayor of five cities. There's no, there's no reason or logic. Five talents and he becomes a mayor of five cities. That is extravagant reward from an extravagant master. 
He is not a severe man at all. He is incredibly generous. But this is how we think of our Father. And so we find our hearts closed to Him because we think His heart is closed to us. Owen saw this as he wrote, and he wanted to communicate as he expounded on the nature of the Trinity, the, the nature of what it means that God is love, that we have a loving Father. There are many Christians in Owen's day and our day that were plagued by this mistrust of the Father. And it is a disease of the soul that flares up again and again. Owen says this, What fears, what questionings are there of his goodwill and kindness? At the best, many think there is no sweetness at all in him toward us. But what is purchased at the high price of the blood of Jesus? Jesus had to coax the Father to love us by dying on the cross. It is true that the blood of Jesus is the means of the communication. But the free fountain and spring of love is in the bosom of the Father. Why should we think less of the Father's love? It was because we hear the message. God loves you because his son died for you, so trust him as your savior. The son forced God to love you. That's what comes out. That's not how the Bible presents the gospel. This, this turns the gospel on its head and it feeds mistrust of the Father. And this is so damaging. The gospel teaches that God so loved the world, his disposition toward the cosmos was that he refused to allow it to, ca to carry on in its curse and in ultimate destruction. And so... He gave his only son. This is the father giving up his son. It is the father who initiates because of his love. And so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God, the father, showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, there is no gap between the love of the Father and that of the Son. Christ died for us because the Father loves us. It isn't in order to persuade a reluctant Father to love us. This has been the kind of thinking that has plagued Christianity. Early on, there was a heresy that taught that the, the God of the New Testament came to rescue us from the God of the Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament is a mean, vindictive God. But Jesus Christ has come to rescue us. That was what was taught. It was condemned as heresy, but its seed continues to be sown. This is what we need to understand. The Father's love is the sine qua non of the work of Christ for us. Because John 16, 27 says, 
For the Father himself loves you. And we need to come to a proper understanding of the nature of the Father. It is a malaise that remains in the soul when we do not grasp his love. And we find it suck away our joy, our peace, our energy, our worship, our witness. We become anemic. And so we need a proper medicine for our sick souls. We need a gospel tonic that will put us in a right understanding that will fill us with joy and assurance. What do we need to do? Brothers and sisters, dear church, we need to take a daily dose of the Father's love. You need to reflect on the high privilege of being called a child of God. The Father is a sun, like a, like, a, like a sun in the sky that beams eternal love. And Christ is the stream. And through Christ we are led to the Father who is the fountain of all grace and kindness. As Owen says, he is a father, a mother, a shepherd, a hen over chickens. Owen says we need to receive first and then return the Father's love. Well, how do we receive the Father's love? Well, we receive the Father's love by faith. He has demonstrated his love in Christ. In love, he sent his son for us. By Christ's death, all cause for the Father's wrath against us is removed. If the Father did not spare his son, but gave him up to the cross for us, then we have only one conclusion to reach. And it is that the Father will graciously supply all of our needs, we have every reason to trust him. It is a God who has designed our salvation for our good. Our, as Owen said, our benefaction. But Owen also called the Father's love a love of complacency. And that word originally meant satisfaction. It was a love of satisfaction. That, that is a love that is designed to satisfy us, to fill us with happiness, with joy and peace. Like Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. This is our Heavenly Father, and He loves us. He rejoices over us. He is glad because of us. He exalts over us with loud singing. He runs to us when we come back to Him in repentance, seeking His face. He loves us. And we must, we must eye the Father's love. We must fix our gaze on the Father's love. Stop looking at your sin. This is what we do. We fix our gaze on our own sin. 
And we forget the loveliness of God. We see our own unloveliness and we, and we miss the loveliness of God. We look past the love of our Father. But we are meant to fix our eyes on Christ so that they may be raised through him to the Father's love that is demonstrated in him. We are to drink so deeply of God's love in Christ that we reach the head of the waters found in the heart of the Father. When the eye of our faith sees the Father's love, the mouth of faith will drink deeply of the streams of grace. And this is how we will receive his love. And we will find ourselves inevitably, irresistibly returning to this love. And just as Christ is the one through whom the Father's love comes to us, so in Christ our love is returned to the Father. And we have the entirety of the Trinity at work in order to raise us to a deeper and more more profound understanding of this love. The Holy Spirit himself is at work demonstrating drawing us so that we might know the Father's love. The Father's love is antecedent to ours. Our love is consequent to his. He, he, we love him because he first loved us. Our, our love goes to him even though we were once haters of God. And he has come to us because he is a lover of man. He loved the world. And we love him because he first loved us. And so his love is unchangeable. Ours is mutable, but his never changes. He may not always smile out his love to us, but he never ceases to actually love us. We may not always see what looks like his love, but his immutable nature means that his love never stops loving. And we need to contemplate this. Owen says, this is the love of the all-sufficient, infinitely satiated with himself and his own glorious excellencies and perfections, who has no need to go forth with his love unto others, nor to seek an object of it without himself. He is sufficient unto his own love. He had his son also, his eternal wisdom, to rejoice and delight in himself, delight himself in from all eternity. This might take up and satiate the whole delight of the Father. And then Owen adds, and it is, and he, he will love his saints also. This is a free love. There's nothing in us that causes it. It is from him alone. And so this is the task that we must aim toward. That we must be delivered from the deceit of Satan, which says that the Father does not love us. We must grow in communion with our Heavenly Father. We must discover what David discovered in Psalm 63. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary because, of your, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. 
So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. Or as Owen says, thus, when the soul sees God in his dispensation of love to be infinitely lovely and loving, rests upon him and delights in him as such, then hath it communion with him in love. Our task is to delight in the love of our Father. We need to take daily doses of the Father's love. So meditate on this. Meditate on the truths revealed to us in Scripture about who God is and find yourself motivated to receive that love and to give it back because he is such a great God and he is worthy of our worship and he loves us. hope you find that helpful. I look forward to our next podcast. Until then, come visit us 1030 on Sunday mornings here in Visalia, 6 o'clock at our evening service. We'll see you later.